Welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. As usual, I am your host, William Hill, and this is November 14th, 2014. This is broadcast number 72. And today we have the pleasure of uh, talking with Dr. Chad Van Dixhorn on a book and a project that has been something that he has worked on for many years, and, and I'm sure most of uh, my listeners are familiar with the Westminster Project and the things that he has done with the Westminster Assembly and all the related documentation uh, that centers around that event that happened all the way back in the mid-1600s. Uh, but we'll be talking with him about that subject as well as a book that he has um, put out, Confessing the Faith, A Reader's Guide to the Westminster Confession of Faith, that was published by the Banner of Truth Trust, and we'll be speaking with him in just a few minutes. I just want to bring everybody up to speed on some of the things that are happening around Greenville Seminary. Uh, obviously, the podcast, um, we have many guests lined up now going into the future and wrapping up this year. And if you want to know who those are, uh, simply visit our web- website at confessingourhope.com. There you'll find all the information about coming broadcasts as well as ones that we have done and uh, that's the place really to go to get all the information. And of course, um, in starting early this year, uh, we're starting to think about the Spring Theology Conference. And this year, the, the Theology Conference is on the subject of the law of God, um, specifically um, dealing with various issues surrounding that. And the title or the, the subject of the conference is The Law of God in a Lawless Age. We have various speakers lined up, Dr. Richard Barcelos, Dr. Mark Jones, uh, Ian Hamilton, Dr. Piper, of course, Dr. Tony Curto, uh, Breno Macedo, who is a graduate of Greenville Seminary, and Dr. Sid Dyer and Dr. George Scipione. And they'll be talking about the subject of the law of God in various capacities and from various perspectives. And it's a conference that I think you'd really would enjoy and would like to attend. Um, It's held normally uh, in the early parts of March, March 10th through the 12th of 2015. And more information will be posted on the gpts.edu website here in coming days, but there is a basic information page there if you would like to find out more information about it. Uh, We're working actively at this, even this time, to try to promote the conference and, and talk more about it. And so on the podcast in future days, I'm going to be lining up some of these individual speakers to talk about their conference lecture and the material they're going to be presenting in a more formal capacity. Um, So look forward to that in coming weeks here on the confessingourhope.com website. And of course, if you want to find out more information about the seminary, you can go to the website gpts.edu. And if you have any comments or criticisms, yes, I'll take both. Uh, You can write me at confessingourhope at gpts.edu. Now, as I indicated, we're going to be speaking with Dr. Chad Van Dixhorn on the program today about a book that he has uh, written and has been published by the Banner of Truth. It's, the title of it is Confessing the Faith, a Reader's Guide to the Westminster Confession of Faith. Dr. Van Dixhorn has his MDiv from Westminster Theological Seminary, and that's in Philadelphia, as well as his THM, and he has his PhD from Cambridge University. So, Dr. Van Dixhorn, it's great to have you on um, the program uh, to talk about this subject. I know it's a near, uh, it's, it's a subject that you've put a lot of time and energy, obviously, into, but it's good to have you on to talk about it. Thank you, William. Uh, just up front, uh, can you maybe, uh, for the listener's sake, um, I would imagine most of the Reformed and Presbyterian persuasion, at least, are familiar with your work, um, but maybe take us through, um, in a summary fashion, is how did you get 
started uh, working uh, with the issues or the the the, um, the subject of the Westminster Confession and all the related material, um, and then how did that then uh, branch over into the publication of this particular book that we're talking about today? Yeah, thank you, William. Uh, I think when I was a seminary student, I was first asked to teach on the Westminster Confession of Faith um, at at the uh, little Orthodox Presbyterian Church across the street from Westminster Seminary. And uh, during that time, I became uh, aware that a lot of commentaries on the Confession of Faith um, were, were, were helpful. I benefited from them. But, but a number of them used the Confession as kind of a launching point for the author's own particular views. And uh, it, it, it struck me that, that we could probably use something uh, that was a little more tethered to the text. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and then I, I also think, William, that every generation ought to sort of own its confessional texts uh, anew. And so that gave me an interest in, uh, in writing a commentary on the Westminster Confession of Faith. So that was, oh dear, uh, in, in the mid, mid to late 1990s. Um, so that was that was my, the first project I I uh, had in mind, and and then to to do that I thought if I'm going to say something fresh, I need to learn a lot more about the Westminster Assembly, and that that's when I realized that research on the Assembly had become um, a, a, a kind of a, a, a stale subject, people uh, mm-hmm. citing uh, one another, but not a lot of research was being done in original assembly sources. Um, and, and so I ended up uh, doing research on the assembly, and then later, um, during a, a postdoc in Cambridge, coming back to the confession, um, not using any of the material from the 1990s, but the original idea of writing a confession was, a commentary on the confession was revived at that time. Sure. Now, you make the, you make the statement, and it's Interesting to me, and, and those of us in probably academic circles understand what you mean, but when you say own your confessions anew, what do you mean by that? So what, what, I, what I mean by that is, uh, is, is looking at the confession um, and asking in every generation, is this, is this a text that speaks to us today? Um, is this a text that's useful, given today's church climate issues um, and, and concerns? I mean, this is what G.I. Williamson did so well for, for a previous generation. It's, mm-hmm. it's what others have done before him. And, and it, it's, it seems to me that if our confession is going to remain a vital part of our church life, then we need people to continue uh, reflecting on it in, in every generation. Sure. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, and I think that's why we see um, the continual publication of various systematic theologies as well, because the church is constantly adjusting to various cultural issues, and how does our systematic theology speak to those matters if we do, in fact, believe the Bible speaks to all matters of of man's life? Um, So we need to apply it. Uh, to those particular circumstances, now, certainly, uh, you know, when the confession was written, you know, they weren't wrestling with the issues of abortion or other cultural issues that we find ourselves dealing with. But yet, 
we can find in our confessions that we've held to for so long uh, these matters and try to apply them. And so, and I think that's very helpful. And I'm glad that you mentioned that because so many people that I've run into find sometimes when you mention the Westminster Confession of Faith or even any creed of any kind, they, they tend to turn off. And have you experienced that kind of reaction from various people? Sure, I, sure. Well, why do you think that's the case? Well, um, I, I, I suppose a variety of reasons. Some people think that a lot of doctrinal specificity uh, can create a narrow and unfriendly spirit. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, I, I, I think that almost anything can create narrow and unfriendly spirits, and that uh, a, a good confession, understood rightly, helps us have more material for doxology. Um, mm. And so, so I, I, I'm I'm in favor of creeds and confessions, and I like longer ones more than shorter ones. Um, so it 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 seems to me, um, William, that some people are are worried about the the narrowness of it all. See, it seems to me that other people want to have as few theological bullet points as possible, um, so that we can unite together as Christians for even more important ends than a doctrinal unity. And um, let, me, let me think of an example. I, I, I suppose if Christians want to federate and get together um, for political purposes, and if they see that being the highest end of the church, then, then they're not going to be too comfortable with doctrinally specific creeds because it's going to hinder them from what they think is a more important purpose, um, mm. so that that could be another reason. And then you 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 know that there are people who whose creed is no creed but the Bible. Um, and um, I I, uh, I I don't think that having a dozen bullet points on a website is is usually enough for the church's thriving, for its mission not only to evangelize but also to teach the world. And I, I think a, a lot of a lot of churches that don't like creeds aren't really giving enough thought, perhaps, to raising up a the next generation. Uh, yeah, I, I think that's those are very good observations and helpful. Um, as we've seen the church even change over the last twenty years. I mean, I've been alive forty eight years and only been in the Reformed camp uh, since the mid nineteen nineties. Um, I remember when I first. In, at first came across the Westminster Confession of Faith and never even heard of it before. And I was reading in Lorraine Bettner's book, The Reformed Doctrine of Predestination, and, and he kept mentioning, and, and I was so green, I kept thinking it was a woman that wrote the book. I mean, that's how ignorant I was. Um, and I was corrected by a, a pastor. He told me, hey, look, that's not a woman, that's a man. I'm like, huh? Okay, so I was reading in his book on the subject, and he kept mentioning the Westminster Confession. I'm like, what is this Westminster Confession he keeps talking about? So I got a copy of it, looked it up online, and that was back in the day when the Internet was nothing like it is today. And um, and I was just absolutely just admired it. I, it. The language was so rich. It was so refreshing. It was so clear. The, it was concise. It was a great summary of things. And I remember saying pretty much out loud, where's this been all my life? Where has this been? Yeah. It's such such a helpful thing to have, you know, in, in that bullet idea of I can concisely s- express these things that the Bible teaches 
on. Um, let's go back to the to your work on on the uh, on the assembly itself. How did that begin? And in in was it a, was it a team effort? Did you, did you have people helping you do this work? And maybe talk a little bit about what um, what it entailed. That's kind of an open ended question. I realize <laughs> that, that's that's fine, William. So um, the, the the first thing that I did at, was to. Uh, transcribed the minutes of the Westminster Assembly, which was a solo affair. Um, and uh, a- along the way, became uh, convinced that it would not only be useful to have the full minutes of the Westminster Assembly published at some point, about a third of them have been published previously, but also uh, it-, it became clear that it'd be really helpful to try and see what papers of the Westminster Assembly survived. And so it became a two-part project uh, during, during my PhD. And then um, and due to nepotistic hiring practices, Cambridge kept me on for a few years after that in the history faculty. And um, I, uh, I was able to continue working, especially with the papers of the Assembly. And the Assembly wrote, I, I don't know, maybe 140 documents or something like that. Uh, only a few of them are are well known, and uh, my 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 job was to uh, put together an edition of the minutes and the papers of the assembly um, for for publication with Oxford University Press. Now these are these are now if if memory serves, much of this is now published. That that's right. All of that is published, William, in five volumes. Came out in twenty twelve. What's still ongoing are critical editions of the Assembly's major works. So at OUP prices, um, I didn't want to create. I didn't want to insert in this five volumes volumes a full text of the larger Catechism, Confession, Shorter Catechism, and so on, with with kind of critical textual apparatus. How how do manuscripts compare to the printed text and so forth? So what we did is we've we've started a seven volume series with. Uh, Reformation heritage books. The first volume is already out. Uh, John Bauer has created uh, a wonderful, I think, the definitive edition of the larger catechism. Right now, he's working on the Westminster Confession of Faith, and uh, and will also produce critical editions of the Assembly's Exchange of Minority and Majority Reports on Church Government, mm-hmm. for Church Government, Church Worship, and the Psalter, stuff like that. Oh, that's that's. Fantastic. I, the book you're re- referring to by John Bauer is The Larger Catechism, A Critical Text and Introduction. Yeah. I actually talked with him many years, uh, well, I shouldn't say many, when, when this was published, I think, yeah, 2010, shortly after it came out, published by RHB. Um, I actually sat down and chatted with him on a different podcast um, on that particular book. So now I see how they all married up. Yeah. Now, in Maybe it would be good for the listeners. Again, many people who listen to this program are of the Reformed and Presbyterian persuasion, but not all. Um, maybe give a brief overview as to the history of the Westminster Assembly, and i.e., how did it come about? Yeah. Um, you know what what was going on, the climate, the culture, that kind of thing, and then we'll go from there into your work as it pertains to the assembly, and maybe talk about some surprises if there were any in your research. Did you find anything that was um, that you weren't expecting. So, and maybe there's a lot of things we don't have all day to talk about it, but right. there may be a few big ones. 
So, so William, um, the history of the assembly um, is is really useful for us when we think about the relevance of the Westminster Confession of Faith today. Seems to me that one of the reasons for the continuing vitality and freshness of the Westminster Confession of Faith. It's kind of surprising relevance in the midst of the weirdness of English-speaking evangelicalism is that it was written in such a turbulent context to begin with. Mm. Um, The Westminster Assembly was called by the uh, House of Commons and House of Lords in England during the early 1640s. Uh, There was a civil war going on, and one dimension of that civil war in England, and there was a civil war in in Scotland as well, Um, one dimension of these civil wars was religious. And to the extent that um, theology, church practice, worship, and government were uh, causing those divisions, this assembly was appointed by parliament to try and come up with some kind of a resolution, some kind of fix to the problem that both the king and parliament and uh, godly people around the country would all find uh, acceptable. And so so that was the assembly's remit. Um, It also, along the way, examined thousands of ministers and ministerial candidates. Um, uh, It it created a kind of uh, a grid through which all incoming ministers – uh, needed to pass through, and and uh, anyone wanting to move from one church to another. So that was that that took a huge amount of time as well. So it it, uh, it wrote a directory for ordination, directory for church government, and uh, a directory for worship. Uh, all of all of these things intended to be texts which would address what the Westminster Assembly saw as an incomplete reformation. Something halted by Elizabeth and reversed by Mary, and then uh, uh, only lurching forward by small steps with James, and 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 so forth. Um, the uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith and its uh, thirty three chapters was completed in 1646, and then Scripture proofs were appended to it in uh, in 1647. Uh, as in my commentary, I take these proof texts. Uh, really seriously, in that uh, I see them as um, footnotes often explaining what what the confession has in mind in a particular phrase or or sentence i I use them as a as a guide throughout to help enrich and understand the text of the confession um, after After the confession was written two two catechisms came out larger and shorter. And then the assembly returned to the subject of uh, church government until, until the king was beheaded in January 1649, and Presbyterians were opposed to the regicide. Um, they, they, they weren't Republicans, and, and so they, uh, they refused to continue attending the assembly. And uh, uh, Congregationalists, and, and, and a handful of, of Presbyterians, I should say, uh, kept, kept the assembly going, but it was really reduced to a committee that examined ministers only until 1653. Hmm. I wasn't, I didn't know that. I wasn't aware that they continued after, um, after they put the two catechisms together. Yeah. Yeah. The, yeah. So it's about a 10 year, 10 year event. Interesting. Now, 
there's been some writing by various people as to uh, the process the assembly went through um, in putting together the confession. Yeah. When I first was introduced to the confession, I thought there were you know, a bunch of guys in a room. They're all arguing and debating over these various theological issues, and right. they all took, took a vote and got an answer. Take me through the, the the process. I mean, yeah. how did these hundred and what was it, hundred and twenty some odd yeah. men? Um, how did they they come up with this is what we think about the Bible, this is what we think about God, this is what we think about the you know, the, the, so, and so forth. So they they first started by trying to revise the thirty nine articles of the Church of England. Mm -hmm. um, that task became less appealing when Scottish commissioners joined the assembly and did not want anything um, that smacked of. Uh, of an English or Anglican culture. And uh, so, so the assembly then began to draft its own confession of faith. And what, what it did was to uh, divide up topics to three standing committees. The, the membership of the assembly was divided into three. These were the standing committees. And they would assign different chapters to different committees. Those committees would uh, come up with draft texts and report them to the assembly and then the assembly would uh, debate them uh, phrase by phrase, line by line. If they didn't like it, they'd send it back to the committee and tell them to come back. But, it, but if they thought they had something workable, they, they'd debate each, each phrase or, or line until they had about a paragraph. Um, and then they would go into a stage two of that debate. And, and they'd say, now, what are the we, – we've mentioned so many scriptural passages in our debates. What are the best proofs? for uh, these, these doctrinal statements that we've just voted. And so that was stage two was always the exegetical support stage, if you will. They weren't, in theory, supposed to go back and um, revise what they had written, although people would sometimes use that second, debate, that second exegetical stage in order to reopen a debate if they didn't like what the assembly had just voted. It was often chaotic. They'd have votes and then votes not to allow re-votes and then votes to allow revocations of, and so forth. Um, and uh, it, it, it could be pretty chaotic and time-consuming. Um, then uh, after they had these scriptural supports, they kept these uh, for themselves. When they sent up the confession, finally, as a completed unit, to uh, Parliament, um, they, they did not append scriptural text because... They thought that while the texts were useful for the assembly to justify what it had written, that they weren't self-explanatory. Uh, you, you, mm. you had to know why a particular text was cited. And, and sometimes it would be very obvious. And sometimes, as you'll know if you've looked at the proof text, it takes considerable thought. Um, and uh, Parliament insisted that they append scripture texts. So they went back and, uh, and said, well, now we've got all these scriptural texts appended. Which ones are we going to um, – which, which of those will be attached to the published version? And so that took a little bit of extra time. Um, the, the debates could vary from basic agreement amongst a majority to uh, fa fairly evenly divided uh, moments. Uh, Often there are many people there who just don't vote. It's, it's puzzling. Um, but you can have 80 people in a room and, and uh, only 40 of them vote. Um, and uh, that happens a lot. It happens a lot that people watch the voting 
uh, but but don't participate. They'll even participate in the debate, uh, but not necessarily in, in the vote. I don't, I don't know why. Um, there, uh, you, you wanted to know about interesting or surprising things. Uh, sure. That's not surprising. Um, let me uh, let me see. I think the the first debate which really surprised me is the first one recorded in the minutes. The minutes kind of pick up abruptly in September of 1643. The first debate, oddly enough, William, is about supererogation. And okay, you'll, you'll have to define that for our listeners. Yeah. And, and you know what? You'll have to define it for the host, too. <laughs> Happy to do it. <laughs> it works above and, above and beyond what the law requires. Okay. Um, Super arrogatory works are works that exceed um, the standard that the, that the law of God requires of Christians. There's this odd but important tradition in the medieval period, develops in the medieval period, um, that, that's called evangelical councils. But, but not councils as in big meetings, but councils as in advice. Uh, Concilia Evangelica. Mm. Concilia mm-hmm. Evangelica, these evangelical, or you could call them gospel councils, mm-hmm. uh, are, are words of advice for Christians that you find in the Bible. So when Paul says, um, uh, the, the Lord doesn't say this, I say this. Uh, not the Lord, but I, a couple times. Um, they'll say, see, he's going above and beyond what Scripture really requires of us, he, he's letting us know how to add that extra plus to mm-hmm. life. When Jesus says, you've heard it said, but I say to you, these medieval theologians didn't think that Jesus was giving the heart of the law. Uh, they thought he was teaching people how to go beyond the law. And so when Jesus says, um, not only if you kill somebody, but if you hate somebody, are you con- committing a sin? They'll say, well, what Jesus is teaching us to do is to rise above and beyond the prescriptions of the law. These are evangelical counsels, gospel counsels. Be holy as I am holy. You see, that's not God's standard. That's a way of going above and beyond what's required of us. Mm. Um, What happens at the Reformation is that the doctrine of supererogation as something meritorious, something that the saints do, the idea that they've done above and beyond the law and that um, their good works can be credited to us, that, that's rejected by the Reformers. Uh, Christ's sufficient right. for all of this. Right. But exegesis changes sometimes more slowly than doctrine. And so even a even hundred years later, at the very end of the long Reformation, if you will, there are people inside the Westminster Assembly who still think that concilia evangelical, evangelical councils, is a good way to interpret those texts. Hmm. They believe in non-meritorious works of supererogation, at least in theory. Well, that's pretty surprising. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, e- even more odd, William, th- these... These ideas of non-meritorious works of supererogation don't seem to have any impact on their theology in any way. 
I don't see how it affects their preaching, their piety, anything really. It's just kind of an exegetical theory. But you have people hmm. at the assembly, a small minority that defends this, and they're overwhelmingly defeated, and they move on. Um, but so there are really quirky debates every once in a while. You you think you scratch a Puritan hard, and you find a you find even with a reformer or a Puritan a little bit of a medieval theologian in some of them. Um, so that's my most surprising debate. Um, so some other debates are 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 edifying, interesting uh, debates about pastoral practice, debates about uh, debates that reveal current practices in the Church of England and problems. Mm. Um, and uh, but but there, there's there's my raciest story of the morning. Yeah, it, that that is very interesting, and I know that that's you know been a subject of discussion because um, in other theological areas there's been talk about what the original intent of the Westminster Assembly or the West, the divines at Westminster were when they were arguing over various issues, and 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 I know that some of those arguments have been uh, they, there's been attempts to at least apply those to some very various theological. Um, um, What's the right word? Theological um, unsettling aspects within the PCA. Um, I'm not even going to mention the term, uh, the the phrase. Everybody knows what I'm talking about anyway. But uh, I think. Um, but setting that all aside, um, the makeup of the assembly. Um, some have argued that it, you know, the Presbyterians have have adopted the Westminster standards. Uh, as their secondary standard, as uh, of course only second to the Bible, um, because the makeup of the assembly was by and large um, Presbyterian. Is, is that a fair statement? It's it's a fair statement to say that the makeup of the Westminster Assembly, by and large, became Presbyterian. Uh, there's there's a there's a journey. P- people arrive with Presbyterian ideas. Um, but they need to crystallize form and and come to some kind of an agreement as time goes on. Uh, so so there are committed congregationalists. There are people on the fence. There's a few Episcopalians at the beginning, and there's a large tribe of Presbyterians, and the Presbyterians uh, to, do hold sway in the end. Yes. Hmm. And why is it that, at least in your opinion, obviously studied opinion. Um, that the Westminster Confession has really maintained its status, its stature, um, since it was written. Uh, you know, it, I'm sure it had ebbs and flows throughout history, throughout time, but by and large, it's really maintained a pretty high place in the thinking, especially in the Presbyterian context. Well, I, I, I think that the Westminster Confession of Faith and adaptations of it have... Um, have compelled a lot of people to see its value uh, simply mm-hmm. because it reflects scripture so closely on the topics that it discusses. Um, a, a confession is not a program for action. Uh, a confession can say something about the doctrine of God, but it doesn't tell us how to confront atheists. A, a confession can tell you that uh, marriage is between one man and one woman, but it doesn't tell you how to engage in a culture um, that that denies these basic ideas, but it doesn't need to, and and so when people go there to find a summary of biblical truth, and then are equipped by God to then apply 
that truth to their own context, they're, they're going to be pretty content with the summary for a long time. Um, I, I think it's interesting that the majority of Presbyterians are in the global south. Uh, hmm. And uh, they're, they're using their translations of the Westminster Confession of Faith and, and finding, it, finding it useful. Um, I, I also think, and I, I alluded to this earlier and I suppose didn't really complete the circle of thought, um, the, the context of the Westminster Confession of Faith is, is, is also pretty interesting. Um, we, uh, we know that there's a civil war going on during the time of the Westminster Assembly, but it, but it impacts the writing of the Assembly in, in some pretty profound ways. Um, the existence of rival governments, the kings in Oxford and parliaments in Westminster, uh, the existence of two governments doesn't make people twice as careful about the, what they print or what they preach. And so you've got a, a lot of um, uh, unorthodox ideas mm-hmm. and subversive notions about culture, which may have existed for a while, but which erupt in the, during the Civil War, which, which I guess evidence themselves during the Civil War. It's as if the 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 lid uh, comes off on the can of worms, and all of a sudden mm-hmm. you find out that there are people who don't really believe in the Trinity. There are people who don't think that you know, who, who think that since the Bible is so clear, why do we need pastors anyway? Um, and uh, a lot of the kinds of issues that we encounter in today's world and in evangelical subcultures suddenly evidence themselves. In the 1640s, um, and then and then later, when Charles II comes back to the throne in the 1660s, the, the lid gets put back on the can again to a certain extent. To a certain extent, mm-hmm. and and so there's there's something about the 1640s that is uh, unique. It's it's kind of the the wildest and wooliest part of of. Uh, of English-speaking church history until about the mid-1800s um, when, when the Second Great Awakening introduces a lot of changes and raises a lot of questions once again. So, um, so the confession has a kind of – for those who are sort of recovering evangelicals or people recovering from, from the worst of evangelicalism, you know, churches that are anarchic, um, uh, that have no clear understanding of, of – of what they should be doing in worship, uh, where leadership is abusive. Um, they come to the Westminster Confession of Faith and just see um, issues addressed that their church wasn't addressing. Uh, mm. They see kind of a level of sanity there that they appreciate. And I think that's one reason why people continue to use and, and, and discover with joy uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith again and again. Yeah, I've often said that when I'm teaching, perhaps a Sunday school or whatever it may be, um, right now in our church we're going through the larger catechism, which I've yeah. often referred to as the redheaded stepchild of the uh, of the Westminster, all the documents of the Westminster Assembly, because everybody talks about the shorter catechism and they talk about the confession, but the larger catechism, well, it's just too big to get your head around, so it just kind of gets set aside. But So we're going through it, and one of the things that I've often tried to impress upon those that um, 
patiently listened to me is that the confession of faith and its larger and shorter catechism is very pastoral in many ways, um, very helpful, very encouraging document. It's not just raw theology. It is that. It has that. Um, but it's, it's very helpful um, in a number of ways. Uh, I'm thinking about you know, worship and, and the Lord's Day and, and the matters of that nature. Would you agree with that assessment? Well, I, I, I do think that the confession often strikes a pastoral note. Um, mm-hmm. One only has to think of, about uh, chapters uh, that discuss um, assurance, perseverance, good works. Mm-hmm. Um, many of the anxieties of a, of a, of a Christian are addressed there. Um, uh, the, the, the chapter um, that uh, discusses God's character, uh, chapter 8 on the work of Christ, the these are all warm and doxological chapters. Um, I, I think the distinctions that are made in the chapter on Christian liberty or the chapter on Christian worship are helpful. Um, mm. I, 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 you, me- you mentioned uh, its treatment of the Sabbath. I think that uh, the Westminster uh, uh, divines could have enriched that, that chapter by pointing uh, to the way in which the Sabbath uh, points to our eschatological rest, um, but uh, I, I'm I'm just so grateful for all the good things that it does say. Yeah, mm, absolutely. Now, some have referred to the confession as a compromise document. I've heard that thrown around. Well, I've heard it thrown around. Um, do you agree with that statement? And and if so, maybe elaborate on. And I could probably try to explain what I mean by a compromise document, but I think you're probably in a better position to do that. And and if so, do you? And as you're doing that, agree or disagree? Uh-huh. It was was it a compromise? So, I think it really does. I don't want to pull a Bill Clinton and say what does yes mean, uh, right? But but what does compromise mean? It 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 seems to me that if if one means compromise, if one means by compromise. That, uh, that, that the assembly was, was willing to wobble on some pretty basic issues in order to make peace, then no. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but is there an extent to which varying views are, are accommodated at some place, in some places? A- ab- absolutely. Um, but, but here's what I want to say. Discussions about compromise always assume something about intentionality, about motives. A lot of the compromise that happens, if you want to call it that, at the Westminster Confession, at the Westminster Assembly, is really a matter of negotiation. Mm-hmm. Um, no one particularly wants to give ground, and, and they get the best that they can uh, in, in a debate. Um, is that compromise? Compromise sounds like um, like people, compromise assumes a kind of willingness. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not sure, having read the Westminster Assembly's debates, uh, th- that there's a lot of willingness on, on some of these points. Um, some people want to make a statement more bulletproof, and they just don't get their way. Uh, someone mm-hmm. else might want more latitude. They don't get their way. Um, so if by compromise there's any hint of an idea of doctrinal indifference, then no. Mm-hmm. Um, 
if by compromise we mean that people who are not like-minded on every point were still able to work together and, uh, and produce a text together, then yeah. Hmm. Yeah, anybody that serves on a session today understands that idea they're not always going to get their way but they're able to work together to try to come up with some kind of yeah and i'm not tangible sure. way forward uh, yeah yeah and i'm not sure that working together is best characterized as compromise right I, i'm not sure that that collegiality is best characterized by compromise right and what we see is is some pretty robust ecclesi- uh, uh, we see some pretty robust collegiality at, at the mm. assembly, a, a willingness to, to stick together, um, I- even when the going gets tough. Now, now, mind you, these people are not really there voluntarily, right? They've been summoned there by Parliament. So, so um, <laughs> to draw a direct line between their willingness to stick together and our willingness to stick together in the presbytery is 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 a historically anachronistic. It's it's a bit of a an odd parallel. I mean, these people are there in part because this is their big chance to try and shape their church for the future. Um, not just because they're big hearted and, uh, can put up with a lot of, a a lot of differences between themselves. Mm, Interesting. Now you mentioned there were, there were various views that were accommodated. Can you give a couple examples of that? Well, let, let me let me have a think, William. Sure. And uh, as as before, if I think too long, uh, you can fix this problem as you edit this. <laughs> uh, <laughs> right. I'm trying to. I want to. I want to think of a good example. Um, my mind's running a little slowly this morning. Uh, okay, I've, I've I've got one. You can pick up pick up recording here. Okay. One one example. William would be the question of hypothetical universalism. Okay. I do not think that the Westminster Confession of Faith allows for hypothetical universalist readings. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Um, there are there are people who contend that in God's plan, Jesus dies for everyone but the Holy Spirit only applies that work to some. The work is hypothetically universal. Christ's atoning work is only hypothetically universal because, because God all, all along only, only plans to save his elect. And there are very subtle nuances of this view in the 17th century. Um, as I think about the Westminster Confession of Faith and the way in which it crafts its statements, there are a number of places, there are a number of topics where it could have more explicitly denounced a particular view. Um, but but I, I think of the confession as something like a limousine with bulletproof windows. It's not an armored car. Uh, if, if it was going to be bulletproof against all error, the text would have to be much more clunky, heavy, intricate, filled with technical words and denials and assertions. 
Um, but it's not that. Nor is it an open-top convertible, uh, as some people would would suggest. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I mean, it you can't make of it whatever you will. It's pretty definite in its teachings. Um, you know what? I'm going to can all of that, what I've just said, because you didn't ask me. I, I'm answering the wrong question. You asked me for an example of compromise. Oh, but that was very good. I mean, I, I especially because... The idea yeah, but I'll, I'll be happy to say that in answer to a different question. I don't know. I don't know what the question would be. <laughs> Kidding. I, I can give you that. Yeah. Okay. Okay. But first, let Good. me answer your first question, which, okay. is an, which is an area of potential compromise. Okay. I'm ready to go again. Sorry about all this. Sure. That's okay. Um, one area of potential compromise has to do with millennial views. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I think the the final chapters of the confession drift towards an, a, a most naturally all millennial reading. But there are, there are those who believe in a thousand-year reign of Christ at the assembly, and there's no attempt to shut that down. Um, you, you, just, you just don't see any negative statements about that subject um, at, at the Westminster Assembly um, or in, in its confessional standards. That would be just an easy example of a compromise. Sure. Uh, now, but that raises an interesting question that I never considered until just now about the way the confession was put together. I mean, we have 33 chapters. Yeah. We start with Scripture. Great. That's where it should have started, and it's fantastic it started there. But was did they deal with these subjects in that order, or did they deal with them different orders, and then, then they put them together in a more obvious put, Pretty much this way. order. Pretty, pretty much this order. So they dealt with Scripture first, and they dealt with God you know, second, and, and moved on from what there. What they'll do is they'll assign a, a cluster of chapters to a committee. That I committee will report back on whatever chapter it's ready to discuss first. But there's a rough drift from beginning to end, yes. Well, the reason I asked that question is because you mentioned the end of the confession, and I just wonder, I mean, I you know, I'm a, I get tired. Um, I, I just wonder, you know, did they get to that place in the, you know, the number of years, obviously, they're dealing with these issues, and did they just say, you know what, we're, we've debated ourselves to death, we're tired, it's time to go home, kind of. <laughs> I know maybe it's a crazy question. but No, no um, they don't seem to have run out of steam quite yet. No, not at that okay. point. No. Okay. Um, th- there, is a, there is a logic to the way in which the confession moves. Uh, it starts with its, uh, it, it, you know, most broadly, it starts with the basic assertion that there's a story here and there's a storyteller. So there's God, his word, um, his eternal plan. So you've got your first three chapters on Scripture, God, and the decrees. And then you've got the story itself, the fall, um, the, the effects that the fall has on us, God's saving plan, the covenants. Then, then you get to the mediator and, and his work and, and, uh, and how that impacts us. And, and then how we're incorporated into the church, how, how we're blessed in the church. Uh, sacraments and so on, and and uh, and 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 then and then we move beyond the church as the Christian engages the world. We have marriage and the civil government, and and then we end with uh, with the last things. So there's a there's a basic narrative flow, um, even in these very doctrinal chapters. Uh, why did I say that? I'm not sure. So, something made me think that that was relevant at this point. Uh, well, I think I asked you how you know in in a sense how was. You know how do they you know, how do they go about putting this together this final the final product um, and and you had indicated that you know they just took them as they as we have them. I, I so, love it when someone can make sense out of me. Thank you. That's great. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, it's, uh, you know, maybe I'll reveal my thick-headedness a little bit, but I never considered it quite that way before. I just, you know, I've always, I've read the confession. I just read it wherever I am and never really related the parts before the chapter I'm reading and the parts after the uh-huh. chapter I'm reading, but they go together. There's a context they, and there's a reason. They do, and there's also a way in which to look at how they come together in a systematic way, too. But that, that idea was suggested to me, to me suggested to me last night, uh, uh, Reformed Theological Seminary, where I teach, had a, had a colloquium on the Westminster Confession of Faith, and, and uh, I, I borrowed that from a colleague. I, I'd give him credit if I could remember which one of them said it. Um, so, so, William, you mentioned earlier the question of compromise. Um, I, I'd also say that, that there, are, there are places where uh, the assembly hasn't compromised but also hasn't uh, shut down error as, as loudly as it could. Let, let, me, let me give you a metaphor. Um, some people think of the confession as like an open-top convertible, um, right. where uh, all, all, almost, almost anything goes. Uh, and others wish it were something more like an armored car, uh, excluding every possible heretical attack. I think of it more as like a limousine with bulletproof windows. Um, the, the assembly tries to avoid um, error, so it's not an open-top convertible. But it doesn't do so in kind of a heavy, clunky way. It could have used many more denials, many more technical terms. I mean, if it truly wanted to be uh, blast-proof, um, a heresy proof, it could have done more. But it is but but they were trying to create a text that was also readable. Mm-hmm. Um, that 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 an average person could understand without wondering, now why is that here and this here and that there? Let me pick the subject of hypothetical universalism as an example. Hypothetical universalism is the idea that uh, God the Father uh, sent his son to die for everyone but only sends his spirit to redeem some people. Uh, there's a kind of Trinitarian disconnect. There are other issues. There are very subtle versions of hypothetical universalism that are available in the 17th century. I believe that the Westminster, and this subject is discussed at the Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, at the, excuse me, at the Westminster Assembly. Um, I, I think that the Westminster Confession of Faith could have been made more bulletproof on this subject. Uh, it could be heavier, clunkier. It could, it could proscribe that idea more clearly. But I do think it's clear enough. And that mm-hmm. if you take uh, sentences together and not apart, then le- let me be nerdy here and give an example. Chapter 3, paragraph 6. If it's read with paragraph 7... Um, pre- precludes hypothetical universalism. If, if you read these two chapters together and, and not just apart, there's no way that you can have a hypothetical universalist read your confession of faith. It, it, it bans the idea. It basically says whatever Jesus Christ uh, accomplished, uh, he also applies uh, to his elect only and everybody else falls into a different category. Mm-hmm. That might be kind of arcane, 
but I, I think it's I think it's useful to have kind of an overall understanding of what they're trying to do and what they care for uh, when it comes to speaking truth and prohibiting uh, error. Sure. Well, I promised you I'd get you off here by in, within sixty minutes, but I do have to ask this one question, and then we'll talk briefly about the particulars of the book. I mean, we talked all around it, I think, in some capacity, but I'm an American, obviously, and I'm, I'm an American Presbyterian, and it, it, I, and I'm going to get an F now in church history because I can't remember the exact date when when they adopted the West, when the American Presbyterianism yeah. adopted yeah. the Westminster Confession, yeah. but, they, but they revised it. They changed it. 1788. That's it. And they published their changes in 1789. Do you think those changes were good, bad, or indifferent? Oh, no, I think they're good. Hmm. Interesting. Why? I, I think the Westminster Assembly makes one large mistake, and that is that it identifies uh, Israel and the church, but it gets Israel in the wrong period of its history. It, hmm. it, it, it seems to think about Israel as if it were in the promised land. And the church is not Israel in the promised land. Uh, the church is Israel in exile in the wilderness. And so when the Westminster Assembly tries to, um, tries to argue that the civil magistrate has religious duties to lead and to guide the church, much like Israelite kings and judges did when they were in the promised land. That's a category mistake. Um, was that possibly born out of the fact that that's the Westminster Assembly was sort of in the middle of that themselves? It's born out of the fact that everybody thinks that way since Constantine till about mm. till, 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 till the 1700s. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's, very, that's very helpful. Now, of course, they also had the whole issue with the Antichrist. Yeah, I mean that's more of an that's more of an it, that is that is part of a of a worldview that perceives of Roman Catholicism as enemy number one, um, and that that view thrives in the church right into the twentieth century, um, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Uh, all throughout the. 19th century, there are sort of annual anti-popery sermons and so forth, and 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 uh, there's real utility in seeing the danger of the teachings and uh, the model that the Roman Catholic Church sets forth. I I, I think the reason why the uh, the Church eventually, Presbyterians eventually, uh, for the most part, have removed the designation of the Pope as the Antichrist. Is because that's too specific uh, an interpretation of a passage that allows more than one reading. Uh, in in the original assembly, it was very specific, right? It was the Pope is the Antichrist. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, and I've heard people try to reason around that by saying, "Well, he is an Antichrist." I'm like, "Yes, but that's not what it says." No, it's it not says, what it says. Yeah, and I've always felt that that was not being faithful to the original documentation that that they really meant that the pope the one sitting in rome the one in the vatican he's the antichrist yeah. and it's not a question of he is an antichrist i don't think any christian 
uh, would disagree with the fact that he's opposed to the work of Christ, um, whether he not understands it or not is another subject, but um, fine, fine. I mean, that, if that's what it said, I'd have no issue, but that's not what it says. It says he, the Pope is the Antichrist, that i.e., that man of perdition, that, that man of sin, that, you know, and I, I, that's where I have the problem in that trying to articulate it that way, because that's not, I don't think that's what they meant. And you would say that's true. They, they meant the guy in Rome. They meant the guy in Rome, and now you've got that off your chest. <laughs> yeah, I feel better. <laughs> a whole lot better. Let's talk briefly about the book. Yeah. We've obviously talked around it, and we've laid a really good foundation of why people should read it. Um, it, it you've talked about the, you know, the, the, we need to always look at our confessions from new sets of eyes, new perspective in our cultural milieu that we find ourselves in and, and, and find the value in, 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 in it there. And that's very good. And, and hence one of the reasons why the book I think was written. Um, but what's your goal? I mean, what are you hoping to accomplish? So, um, yeah, yeah. I don't, don't, don't mean to interrupt you. That's um, okay. so I have a personal, I had a personal goal. Uh, I, I, I wrote the confession while I was at Cambridge, um, working on the minutes and papers of the Westminster Assembly. Uh, those minutes and papers, on the whole, are, are not inspirational documents. Um, and I wanted something to feed my soul uh, a little bit more than the minutes and papers do. Uh, and so I, I began uh, giving uh, expositions on the confession at Cambridge Presbyterian Church, continued that when I moved uh, to uh, to Vienna, Virginia, where I am now, just outside D.C., uh, at Grace Presbyterian Church, um, and uh, did did that on Sundays here, and then um, completed it in order to to give lectures at at RTS and elsewhere. Um, I found that uh, reading a paragraph and thinking about the biblical basis of each doctrine and how it can lead to praise of God or reform of life uh, was, was very useful. So it was that personal reason. And that kept me going on this project for, for some years uh, until it was brought to completion. And, and, then, and then, William, I, I suppose I am concerned that, um, that a lot of documents, that a lot of, of, of church statements of belief are too short and mm-hmm. too bland. Um, you know, God is just, you know, point one or two on the outline, but he's, he's, he doesn't seem to be anything to be praised. And so I, I want to uh, help people see how this, how this confession is biblical and how it gives us sort of rich material um, for, for praise of God. And, mm. uh, and so I, I hope that that tone is communicated in the book. Um, it, it, it seems to me that if I'm writing a commentary on a book by Puritans, it ought, it ought to have a little bit of that, the best of the Puritanical spirit leaking mm. through from, from time to time. Sure. And, and then also, I, I wanted to try and write something that would be clear enough so that um, – any a teenager or adult would be able to understand what it's saying. They may need to pull out a dictionary every once in a while, but but something which lays out the breadth of the teaching of this confessional text um, with with real clarity. So that that's another thing that I I at least attempt. 
Yeah, well, I think it's well done. Um, and, and I can't think of somebody else that would be in a better position to do what you've done with this volume, which, you know, in, in some sense is probably short. Um, it's 484 pages if you consider the index. Um, and, and, and omit the introduction. I, I like that. And, and it's put together very well. I'm talking about just the substance of the material, the book. It's put out by Banner. I, I heard somewhere that they do their hardcovers so they last 100 years. Um, I don't know if that's true or not. I've heard that. Um, I don't know who told me that. Somebody who knows something, I, I guess. better books um, to read in 100 years on the Westminster Confession of Faith. Yes, but if you buy it, it's going to last. It's not going to fall apart and and be of no your pages flying all over the room yeah, at some nice point. But uh, they've done a great job. Yes, and it's um, and you know, in, in in thinking of that, have you received any feedback at all from um, others as far as the book is concerned? Um, Good, bad, or indifferent. Yeah, p- people have been very kind, William. Yes, well, I hope so. They ought to be kind, at least kind. <laughs> But that's good. I mean, it's. I, I can see this actually as. I mean, I have it sitting right here on my, um, my table, and um, you know, find myself leafing through it and reviewing things, especially as I'm teaching through the larger catechism, trying to, you know, get some more insight and understanding um, on a on a document. I think you could study your whole life and and still never completely master. Um, there's just so much, as you said, rich doxology contained within it that, you know, you just don't ever get to the bottom of it. And it's just a splendid document that, that God and his providence put together um, in the 17th century. And we're still, as a church, feeding on that in today's world. Um, that, that's got to say something yeah. all by itself. So anyway, well, I really appreciate you, your time and, and the labors you've put into this um, project. You mentioned the five volumes. Now, who's, who publishes that? The five, the, those are the minutes of the uh, Oxford University Press. If you okay. sell a child or your latest car, you should be able to afford that. Yeah, I, you know, I wish I could. Yeah, so, <laughs> well, we won't talk about that. But yes, if you're interested in that that volume of work, um, you can Google it, Amazon, or wherever you'll probably find it um, pretty easily. But um, as my guest has said, it's not uh, it's not cheap either. So, but be that as it may. Um, it, it may be worth it um, to, if you really want to dive in uh, into the deep end, as it were. But if not, then I would encourage you to get this copy put out by Banner um, of Truth. Just go to their website, banneroftruth.com, and um, it's there. It's available. It was. It's just recently released. I think. Well, it's copyright 2014, but I know it came out not too long ago. End, um, yeah, in the summer, the end of the summer. Yeah. Yep. And I just got my copy not too long, not too long ago myself. Um, all right, that was redundant. But um, anyway, I would encourage you to get at least get this. And if you have other commentaries on the confession put out by guys like Hodge and and I forget the other guys, so forgive me. But you know, to supplement this, this is fantastic, up to date as we've talked about already. Looking at the confession anew um, with fresh eyes and our generation and our culture and the things that we're dealing with in the church. Um, but especially if you're an officer in the church. Uh, in the Presbyterian context, I mean, you've taken vows to submit to the Westminster Standards. Um, it's a fantastic way to stay abreast and familiar and, and, and revisit these things that you said you would uphold as an officer in the church. So I would strongly commend it to any anybody, but especially those who are um, who have taken vows to, to uphold it. So, But Dr. Van Dixorn, I appreciate your time. I know you're very busy, um, and I, I told you 30 minutes to an hour. I think we've bumped up to the hour. Um, it's amazing how that happens in conversation, but, um, 
I appreciate your time and your labors and your work in the church, and, and I trust and pray that this will be very beneficial and helpful. Well, th- thank you for having me on the show, William. Absolutely. Hang on the line just a second while I wrap things up. I just want to, again, reiterate to everybody, if you're interested in the Spring Theology Conference put on by Greenville Seminary, it's every year. Um, go to our website, gpts.edu, and um, you can get all the information uh, related to the conference right there. And that page will be updating as we get closer and closer with more and more information um, uh, in, in relation to the conference. So until next time, when we sit down and talk with Peter Barnes, I'm going to be speaking with him um, all the way from Australia. Now, I won't be in Australia. I'll be here in the States, but he'll be in Australia, so which means you do the math and the time and everything. It's been really interesting trying to get that all coordinated. But I'll be speaking with him on a document that he released that was also put out in the Banner of Truth magazine, the month monthly publication of the Banner of Truth Trust. And so we'll be speaking with him on a particular article that he wrote. And for the life of me, I can't remember the name of it now. So, well, anyway, go to the website. You can get the title there. So until next time, we do thank you for listening to this particular edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. And God bless.